Hello and welcome to the Risk Map podcast from Control Risks, the specialist risk consultancy. I'm your host, Charles Hecker, and across five episodes, I'll be speaking with our regional experts to find out how the top five risks we've identified for 2020 have been evolving and will continue to evolve in different regional contexts as the world navigates its way through the disruption, unrest, and economic shocks caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. In this episode, we'll be looking at Europe. So let's meet our experts. Alexandra Kellert is a London-based analyst covering most of the fun parts of Western Europe in our Global Risk Analysis Unit. Zandra, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chuck. Florian Otto is joining us from Frankfurt, where he's an Associate Director for Europe, also in our Global Risk Analysis Unit. Florian, it's great to have you. Thank you very much, Chuck. And also joining from Frankfurt is Caroline Nelman. Caroline's an Associate Director for Crisis and Security Consulting and looks after clients in Europe and their concerns around the world. Caroline, hi. Hi, nice to be here. Thanks. It's a pleasure having all of you. Let's jump straight in and look at one of the the most important elements in Control Risk's top five for the rest of 2020, and that is the question of leadership. Um, Florian, I'm going to start with you. Uh, There's been an enormous amount of attention focused on the leadership of the European Union and on its cohesion under the pressure of the pandemic. Um, Florian, from your perspective in Germany, tell us how has COVID-19 impacted leadership instability or stability, should I say, um, within the European Union? It's, it's a really good question, Chuck. And I mean, firstly, we saw the expected rally around the flag effect in most EU countries. So major crises are the hour of the executive. However, this effect has already proved relatively short-lived in some countries, particularly where we either saw high discontent with governments prior to the outbreak of the pandemic or where the pandemic struck particularly hard. For example, Italy, France, and Spain, where you initially sort of saw stabilization in a relatively unstable political environment in the first weeks after the outbreak. But this consensus that we briefly saw has already started to fracture. Conversely, in other countries, and I'm thinking here, for example, Denmark, the Netherlands and Germany, the governments actually have been able to hold on to quite significant gains in um, public support. The main reason for that seems to be that they generally handled the crisis response really well and, and managed to actually recover some trust that populists had lost in, in them. So it, it is a differentiated picture. But where we already had issues before, COVID-19 is compounding these. Florian, if we go beyond the politics and, and leadership, just very briefly, tell us a little bit about what the economic implications have been. I mean, we've also seen an awful lot of attention focused on the notion of an EU bailout and the issuance of EU bonds. Tell us a little bit about your view on the European economy. This overall 750 billion euros that member states and the Commission will mobilize is a very significant step. But at the same time, it is a step that is absolutely required because what we can already see is that the economic divergence that is one of the you know main challenges to the long-term political cohesion of the blog is actually growing. 
Our colleagues at our strategic partner, Oxford Economics, have done some fascinating research that points to an increased risk of even greater economic divergence in the EU, which then also risks to compound threats to the bloc's political cohesion. Not only were economically weaker countries like Italy, Spain, and to a lesser extent France forced to impose longer and harsher lockdowns than, for example, Austria, Denmark, or Germany, but their ability to respond to the crisis through fiscal policy is also much more limited, which means these economies will overall be hit harder and won't recover as quickly. The challenge we see is that the, the economic weaknesses in, in some countries before the outbreak of the crisis will actually get worse, while those who were actually pretty well off before the crisis started will continue to pull away that threatens in the long term to increase the centrifugal forces that raises questions about the longevity of the bloc. Florian, thank you very much for that perfect transition over to Zandra Kellert in London. Zandra, there was a time when we could have very comfortably fit a conversation about the UK into a conversation about the EU. That is, of course, no longer the case. Pretty much the same questions, though, for you about the the UK, which has not enjoyed a very good pandemic. and, And I don't mean to make light of that. Tell us a little bit about leadership in the UK. Absolutely. I think when we started 2020 in the UK, it was really meant to be the year when kind of political stability returned to some extent. After the election in December, where Boris Johnson won a comfortable majority, it looked like 2020 was going to see, yes, Brexit, obviously, but then a situation whereby the government should be able to have a much more comfortable time domestically. The pandemic has really changed that almost completely. So as what Florian was saying has been the case in a lot of European countries, there was that initial rally around the flag. In the initial part of the the outbreak, Boris Johnson's approval ratings were very high. Everyone felt that what was being done was effective. I think also the fact that he was personally hospitalised with COVID-19 added to that. And there was a sense of him really being able to understand the situation because of that. However, that has really shifted in recent weeks. The government has been criticised really from from two sides, both from those who are, are cautious about reopening and think that the UK has not yet got out of the woods completely and should be maintaining these strict restrictions. While on the other side, we've got people who say, you know, the, the economic impact is too too much. We need to open things quickly. And Boris Johnson has really failed to kind of take hold of the narrative. And in many ways, his decision making has been shown to be driven by political considerations rather than necessarily scientific ones. So what we're really seeing now is that where before it looked like the Conservative government was going to be able to be quite coherent, you know, all of the MPs elected as Conservatives in December were on board with the Brexit plan, which was really the issue that had divided the Conservatives for years. But now we've got these new divisions and we're already seeing where backbenchers are starting to feel that actually they can stand up to the government and to Boris Johnson. And I don't think he's going to have an easy ride of it in the coming months. It's it's a real sort of merry-go-round of politics from this sort of incredible solidarity to the return of of competitive politics, not just between um, the government, the the conservative party, and um, you know the return of a strong opposition in Labour, 
but also what's happening inside the Conservative Party itself. Zandra, you touched a little bit on the economy in your earlier remarks. Um, the British economy, I think, by most measures, has contracted by about 20%. Um, clearly, that must be a driver of the decision-making. Um, how, how strong is the economic factor and, and how weak is the economy itself? As you say, 20% was the figure that came out for April. So we still don't know yet what the, the longer term impact since has been and indeed what we're looking at further down the line. But certainly all forecasts are that the, the outbreak is going to have a, a significant impact on the UK economy. This is definitely driving some of the decisions being made at government level. As we hinted there before, there are now these kind of tensions between the two sides who are driven by health considerations and those who are driven by economic considerations. And really, I think at the moment, to quite a significant extent, those most concerned about the economic implications are starting to look like they're winning. We've already seen things like the reopening of shops, and there's now a real push to reopen the hospitality sector. But the UK is still seeing much higher levels of infection than much of the rest of Europe, which has started reopening those areas. And so there is a real concern that certainly those economic factors are what is driving the reopening. Sandra, thank you. So Caroline, you're listening to this podcast, you're a company executive, and you see different rates of infection, you see different rates of reopening, you see different styles of leadership, you see different levels of political stability, and you're a company that has a footprint right across Europe. What, you know, the simple question is, you know, what are you doing? Um, and, but what are the primary considerations for companies in terms of building better resilience in the face of this patchwork? I mean, in terms of those companies that have, as you said, footprints in different jurisdictions, there's different policies, different levels of restrictions, and also contending realities between what your internal corporate policy is and the the economic and political reality and risks that you're facing in these different places. And so that's an issue that certainly many, many companies have been grappling with in different scopes. So in terms of what what we've seen as quote unquote best practices for these companies facing the reality, both in terms of the response to date, but then also in terms of the short and medium term operations and long term resilience is really looking at the strength of the leadership coordination and the internal communication. So starting with leadership coordination, it's really critical to have a strategy. So this is something that that many are struggling with a bit because you might have a clear understanding of the risk environment in which you work, but translating that into a corporate strategy is hard and requires that significant coordination of all business elements at that top level. But then secondarily, you have to translate that into clear communication um, of your intent, of your strategy, to all of the business units and all of the teams who actually are going to implement that. And that is often where the rub is. Again, those two elements of leadership coordination of internal communication are certainly what we've seen as, as successful factors to allow a company, especially one with a multinational footprint, to react nimbly and, and robustly to, to the crisis and also be resilient for the future. Caroline, thanks. We're going to jump now to big geopolitics, and I'm going to go to Zandra, the UK is trying to negotiate a trade deal with the US. 
amid all of the speculation about the U.S. election and, and whether we will have a president elected or a president re-elected. And, you know, for businesses, and, and you'll, we'll go to Florian after this, for businesses first in the U.K. and then later in Europe, how do you prepare yourself or what do you do during a very bumpy election season? The US election really just adds another layer of uncertainty for businesses in the UK who were already concerned about what the likely impact of, of Brexit will be. So yes, the UK has left the EU, but it's still in this transition period where things are more or less the same. That's due to end at the end of this year. So at around the same time, we're potentially having a new president in the US or the re-election of Donald Trump. The US and the UK have said that they're ambitious and they want to get a trade deal done before the election in November. But all trade experts think that any kind of comprehensive deal will take much longer. So we're looking at a situation whereby by November we could have a partial deal negotiated, in which case that could essentially be more or less ripped up under a Biden presidency. Or we could have impetus towards a new trading relationship that would potentially carry on under a, a further Trump presidency. So it's really just that that extra level on top of the Brexit uncertainty. Florian, uh, President Trump has has been a little bit harsh with the European Union and and with some of Europe's biggest economies. Uh, from your perspective, in the middle of of Europe and and in the financial heart of the EU. What is the EU, what is Germany doing to protect itself from being too heavily battered in the election season? To begin with, because you pointed towards this one, I think the German government will continue to do what, what it has been doing since um, the start of the Trump administration. Try to maintain the relationship with the US as, as far as possible without actually coming under criticism domestically for, for pandering to the current U.S. administration. So for the time being, the government in Berlin will hope to get through this election seasons without any sort of major hiccups and also try to, to stay clear of any major controversies. Whether this will sort of work out is not entirely in, um, in Berlin's and Chancellor Merkel's hand, hands, but there, there is, I guess, a strong sense that there is very little to gain if sort of, you know, more, more porcelain gets, gets, gets broken along the way. Because let's, let's not make any mistakes. The, the past three and a half years have transformed the transatlantic relationship. It, it wasn't an entirely easy one before the current administration in the U.S. came to power. But the much more far-reaching demands and also the way they they were communicated and have have left a mark not only in germany but also in the eu more widely and this large debate that is sort of well that, that was ongoing before the outbreak of covid-19 about the eu's strategic autonomy and the need for the eu you know to to redefine its place in the world and become a more independent actor these conversations continue through covid-19 we see efforts both at the european level but also at the member state level to to bolster measures to protect the European economy, to prevent a potential sellout of companies coming under, under pressure. In a way, the EU is becoming a bit more robust in, in how it is looking 
among other things, at foreign investment, not only from China, that has been a longstanding concern, but you 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 hear more often that, you know, there, there is also growing concern about potentially investments from the U.S. It is an interesting development because the, the EU at its core is pro-free trade and, and all about reducing obstacles to investment, but it is in a way now forced to reciprocate to measures taken elsewhere and to in a way, create that level playing field that exists within the EU, also at the international level. Florian, thank you for that. I want to move on to one of the other pillars of risk map for the rest of 2020, and that is the question of activism. And in all of our conversations with clients around the world, the rise of social activism in recent years and the acceleration of social activism as a result of the pandemic once lockdown is over, is is something that's very much uh, on everyone's mind and on a lot of businesses' agendas. Florian, just quickly back to you for a specific question about labor activism and and the workforce. Give us your thoughts about how COVID-19 has specifically impacted that type of activism. Again, taking European perspective, we we haven't observed a uniform picture in this regard. But but let me let me highlight two observations here. So one, where employees and labor representatives felt that companies or governments were not adequately protecting workers, we saw more protests and and strikes over the the course of the pandemic. And This type of activism is highly likely to continue now that people are returning to work and as, you know, the adaptation process continues. So in a way being, and I think it goes to what what Caroline says, right, communicating very clearly to um, to employees what steps companies are taking, but also reviewing the the measures companies are taking to, to provide a safe working environment is of paramount importance because there is an awful lot of scrutiny on that. And labor representatives have been extremely active also in publishing guidance and making very specific demands on what is required for people to return to work. So Caroline, tell us a little bit about what the impact of the pandemic has had on people in companies, on, on the individuals, on their psychology, uh, and on the feelings that they're going to have about work, about their employers, and, and how that's going to express itself now that lockdown conditions are relaxing. In addition to any existing stressors, and we've been talking about activism here, you know, existing strong beliefs or grievances, uh, you have these additional COVID stressors. And so you're thinking about your your personal health, your family, your job security, possibly. And you have all of this extra energy feeding into your pre-existing beliefs. And that can lead to increased activism, both outside, but also inside company gates, especially regarding labor issues, like Florian mentioned. So just as the pandemic hasn't necessarily altered the overall risk landscape, but instead rather intensified it or accelerated the risks, this is what we, we are seeing now and then also expect to see in terms of activism. And that's just the reality. I mean, everyone, you can self-reflect if you're listening to this. There are additional stressors that have potentially aggravated you in whatever way. And then the ability now to be free. And again, different jurisdictions have different lengths of their policies here. But the the tendency of now more freedom of movement and of uh, of joining together is 
is a reality and people want to use that energy uh, to go outside and to show what their beliefs are, and especially in terms of those labor issues, like Florian mentioned, activism um, outside the company gates, but also inside. Zandra, if you cast your mind back to the very beginning of the pandemic, we saw you know, online and in newspapers all around the world, these incredible pictures of cities where economic activity had come to a, a crushing halt and how clear the air was in places like Delhi or in Shanghai or in, you know, Mexico City in, in, in Sao Paulo. Tell us your view a little bit about environmental issues going forward and what should companies be expecting in environmental activism now that lockdowns are beginning to ease? So that theme of clearer, cleaner air during the pandemic is one that environmentalist groups, particularly Extinction Rebellion, have seized on that. Extinction Rebellion has come up with a phrase for its new campaigning, which is no going back. The fear among environmentalists is that the economic concerns will override any progress that was being made on environmentalist concerns. So I think we're likely to see environmentalist groups stepping up their activities and not just against governments. Even before the pandemic, we had groups like Extinction Rebellion and Greenpeace becoming increasingly focused on targeting companies rather than general protests. We're likely to see much more in the way of physical protests against individual companies that are viewed as either being high emitters themselves or as funding sectors that are high emitters. We're also likely to see more in the way of non-physical types of protest, because I think the pandemic lockdown has given environmentalist groups the time to think about new tactics. So we're seeing more online activism. And we're also seeing, particularly in the UK, where Extinction Rebellion has really wanted to focus on the financial services sector, trying to push for boycotts of individual companies, or in other areas, we're seeing activists buying shares in companies in order to try and change them from within, as it were. One last question for the whole group, and, and everyone, please jump in as you like, and, and that is to, to pick on one of the other critical elements of this year's top five, and that is, of course, cyber. Does Europe and do companies in Europe need to be aware of increased cybersecurity risks as a result of the pandemic? And, and what might these risks look like? I think we all understand that we're more vulnerable now, but what specifically are we vulnerable to? Um, let me jump in here, Chuck. I think the short answer is definitely. As with the other issues we discussed, COVID-19 also compounds challenges to businesses as far as cyber threats are concerned, which have generally been on the increase for quite some time now. We are at a time of heightened vulnerability due to the massive initial disruption and subsequent adaptation that countless companies have gone through moving you know, their workforces into home offices, into different routines and requiring a large degree of, of flexibility, but also you could call it a crash digitization of their business models. And this state of upheaval creates windows of opportunities that threat actors have only been too happy to exploit. And one thing that our cyber threat intelligence analysts have observed, for example, is a recent spike in ransomware attacks. 
And there are growing concerns about cyber criminals trying to exploit the contact tracing apps that are now being rolled out across the globe, but also in Europe. So this is, this is one element. Let me just emphasize another one. As the geopolitical competition is intensifying and also now extends to how countries handle the pandemic and the race to develop a vaccine, there is an increased threat to critical sectors and particularly research. And in this case, it comes more from, from state actors. And, you know, as we have reported in our cyber security monthly, for example, it is highly likely that multiple states are currently seeking to gain intel and exfiltrate data on biomedical research. And as a lot of the biomedical research into, for example, developing a vaccine is taking place in several European countries, this is certainly an issue that stands out for the region. Sandra, any particular concerns from your perspective? Certainly data considerations, as Florian mentioned, in terms of developing a contact tracing app, the UK is still struggling to achieve that. And one of the key issues is concerns over data privacy. If I can jump in with, I mean, maybe a slightly different perspective, but as we're having this conversation, we're talking about all of the the key risks that we as individuals, as companies, as countries and so on are, are facing. The next logical step for me is, okay, what can we do to mitigate this? The increased risks that that we were all just talking about that we're facing in relation to COVID, in relation to uh, threat actors taking advantage of the work from home environments. Companies have the ability to add additional protections to assess the right way forward in terms of reintegrating those computers that have been floating around in public space uh, and re- and reconnecting to the to the work servers for the first time, you know, and so on and so forth. This is an opportunity that that companies can take to mitigate certain risks. I mean, we can't necessarily impact government policies or economic trends to a major degree. But in all of this complex risk environment that is only exacerbated by COVID-19, there are tangible things that businesses can do to mitigate that risk and build upon the experiences that they had in COVID to then become more resilient. Is that something that you might want to refer to as a silver lining, Caroline? Um, is that that's an opportunity actually for companies to take this moment and and while they're working on their defenses to actually up their game more broadly speaking about how they look at the cyber threat? Exactly. That's fantastic. We're just about out of time for this podcast. I want to say a very big thank you to Zandra joining us in London. Zandra, it's really nice to talk to you again. Thanks. Always a pleasure to talk to you too, Chuck. And to Caroline in Frankfurt, uh, thank you very, very much for the internal insights. Thank you for coordinating all of us. And finally, just to end with you, Florian, also in Frankfurt, it's great to have you on the podcast. It was my pleasure, Chuck. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Risk Map Podcast. All five episodes in this series are available now, wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can explore our entire Risk Map forecast at controlrisks.com. Be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, featuring clear business insight from a panel of our experts on a range of topics every other Monday, or The Supply Chain, a limited series looking at the impact of COVID-19 on supply chains, featuring interviews with our clients, as well as analysis by our experts. To find all our podcasts, just search Control Risks wherever you listen to your podcasts, and make sure to subscribe to stay updated with the newest editions. You can follow all our analysis and find out how we're helping business build organizations that are secure, 
compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com. Thank you, and goodbye for now.